If you're visiting here at Midtown, uh, we, it is our practice to regularly preach through books of the Bible. And uh, right now we're going through the book of Colossians. Jeff is taking us through Colossians. And some of us are also going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And that's where we're going to be today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I need to admit that I feel a little guilty. We have a, uh, a couple uh, visiting this morning. They got married yesterday. Will and Joanne, I think their names are. So this is their honeymoon Sunday, and they get to hear me preach. Um, so happy wedding day to you. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's hear from God's Word through the Apostle Paul under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word written for our good this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we sang this morning, you are a God who is perfect in power, love, and purity. And Father, we acknowledge this morning that we are not perfect in any of those things. We are not perfect in holiness. We are not perfect in love. So help us now, Father, through the encouragement of your scriptures, through the power of your spirit at work among us, to live holy lives of love for one another, Father, in a way that as a church we can magnify and glorify Jesus. Father, we pray now that you will give your people ears of faith to hear your word. Please help me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word, Father, so that we may hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Imagine with me an apple tree, like the one in the children's bulletin this morning. They say there's an apple tree in the children's bulletin. What makes 
a tree, an apple tree. I'm sure there are many ways to distinguish an apple tree from any other kind of tree. I am not aware of any of them because I am not a tree lover, but I'm sure there are many distinguishing marks of an apple tree. But at the core, we all know what, make, what makes an ap- a tree an apple tree is its seed. It's the seed of the tree. It is the life of the seed that gives its properties of appleness to the tree. The problem is that the seed is invisible to us and we, we cannot see it. So how do we know an apple tree? Calvin's, my, my, my oldest son, answer was, well, duh, the apples, dad. Yes. The answer is really simple, isn't it? The apples. It is the fruit of the tree. We can, we can see the apple. We can touch it. We can pluck it out from the tree and taste it. And we can say, this is an apple, and therefore, this is an apple tree. So that it is the outward, visible fruit of the inward and invisible seed that confirms and establishes for us the true nature of the tree. The apples don't make the trees the other way around, but the apples do confirm the true nature of the seed. And the same is true of us, friends. What makes us Christians different from anybody else? Well, at its foundational level, there's one distinguishing mark of true Christianity. Namely, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ. What makes us who we are is the invisible operation of the Spirit of God in us through faith in Christ. It is faith, the one distinguishing mark. This is, in fact, Paul's confidence in the believers in Thessalonica. If you you remember from chapter 1, in verse 4, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why is Paul so confident? About them. How, 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 how can he be so certain of this? Well, he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, Paul's confidence in them is the fact that they received the gospel by faith. So the seed of faith is in them, as far as Paul can tell. But on another level, friends, the, this faith bears visible marks of its hidden nature. Yes, faith is hidden, yet it bears visible marks. Saving faith in Christ is a living faith. It produces fruit that confirms its reality. And I think that is why, although Paul writes with confidence in chapter 1, nevertheless, at the end of chapter 4, he writes, he says, to establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God, to establish their hearts. You see, having begun with the gospel for salvation, we continue in the gospel for vital faith, for life, and for godliness. The secret operation of living faith reveals itself in outward marks that confirm its life and establish our hearts before God. It is faith itself as a living thing that reveals itself. You can think of uh, Matthew 13, the parables of Jesus, of the seed. It is the true seed of faith that bears fruit and in, in essence reveals itself through its fruit. So the question for us this morning is, 
What are the outward marks of living faith? What are these outward marks of living faith? And Paul gives us at least two this morning. I'm not saying that these are the only ones, but Paul gives us two in our passage this morning. The purity of holiness and the simplicity of love. The purity of holiness, verses 1 through 8, and the simplicity of love, verses 9 through 12. So first, in verses 1 through 8, Paul gives us the first mark of living faith, the purity of holiness. Paul, in this text, defines holiness as walking to please God in the purity of our lives. Specifically, he says, sexual purity. In verses 3 through 5, Paul defines holiness as abstaining from sexual immorality, exercising self-control, and living in an honorable way. He also contrasts holiness with the unrestrained pursuit of lustful passions. Look there with me in verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. Holiness is, in fact, the opposite of impurity in verse 7. Paul writes, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That is, holiness is a life of purity, according to Paul. God calls his people out of the world to himself that we may reflect his holy character. God is holy. Indeed, he is perfect in power in holiness, in love. God is holy, and therefore we should be holy. That's what the, both all New Testaments calls us to. God's character is pure and unblemished, and when we walk in purity, we reflect who He is. So holiness is important, friends. It's very important. That is why I believe Paul begins his instruction in this last portion of the letter with a call to holiness. The passage begins in verse 1 with a sense of finality and urgency, doesn't it? Finally, then, brothers, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. It's an urgency to his tone. It is like Paul is saying, this is what I want to live with you. This is what I have to say to you so that your hearts may be established before God. Brothers and sisters, as we seek to live to glorify God in a twisted and confused world, Paul writes to us with a sense of urgency in what is his instruction. Well, he does not give us a plan on how to make our voice heard in the public square. As important as that is. He does not give us a strategy to reform education as important as that is. He doesn't even give us a plan on how to grow our churches, as important as that might be. Now, friends, Paul urges us and instructs us to be known by our holiness, our holiness. What makes us different from the world is that we live to please God in holiness and that we continue to grow in it more and more. That's what makes us who we are as the people of God. Again, friends, holiness is important, and yet it is a much-neglected biblical theme, at least in my perspective. 
a much-neglected biblical theme. For obvious reasons, there's not much talk about holiness in our culture. That shouldn't be shocking to us. But what is alarming is how little talk about holiness there is among Christians, even among those who pride themselves for getting theology right. I don't know how or when, but somehow and somewhere, I think we have forgotten that God's sovereignty in the salvation of sinners also includes His sovereignty over the way we live our lives. God's sovereignty is all-encompassing. Brothers and sisters, God's salvation includes the fact that He is making for for Himself a holy people. So that if we don't get holiness right, we don't get the gospel. Holiness is important. So let's listen to what Paul says about it in these verses. First, Paul says that holiness is the work of God. It is the work of God. More specifically, God works holiness in His people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of His Spirit. In verses 1 through 2, again, Paul urges us in the Lord Jesus and says that his apostolic instruction is through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Paul's apostolic instruction through Christ, that is, his proclamation of the gospel that God used from the beginning to work powerfully among the believers in Thessalonica. And friends, it is this same gospel that God uses to work powerfully in our lives. God works through the gospel. Friends, Paul is not adding to the gospel in these verses. He is not adding to the powerful work of God already begun among us. It's not like we get the gospel first and then we get holiness. Rather, Paul is urging us to continue building our lives in him, in the gospel. Holiness is the will of God, Paul says in verse 3. It is part of his purpose of redemption. When God called us powerfully to himself through the proclamation of the gospel, he calls us, as Paul says in verse 7, not for impurity, but in holiness. That is the gospel call. Not for impurity, but in holiness. Holiness is part of the redemptive plan of God. It is not an add-on to redemption, but it is the regular work of God among his people. It is his regular, ordinary work to make himself a holy people. Notice now how Paul uses the language of covenant throughout verses 5 through 8. First, he says that those who do not control their bodies in holiness and honor, but give themselves to the passion of lust, are like Gentiles who do not know God. The Gentiles are those who are not in covenant with God. They are outside the covenant and therefore do not know God. Friends, I think Paul is thinking about God's promise of a new covenant here in Jeremiah 31, where he promises that all of God's people will know him from the least to the greatest. That is one of the most precious promises of the new covenant, that we as the people of God know him. It is God's promise in the new covenant that we will have an intimate knowledge of him. Paul is saying that those who persist in sexual immorality 
reveal themselves to be like the Gentiles who do not know God. That is, they reveal themselves to be outside the new covenant. That's a frightening thing to think about. Furthermore, the new covenant covenant is summed up in God's promise to give His Spirit to His people. You can think about God's promises in uh, the prophet Ezekiel, where He promises that He will give His people a new heart and that He will give His Spirit to them. That is why Paul reminds us here in verse 8 that God gives us His Spirit. It is the work of God according to His new covenant promises to give His people His Spirit. And friends, His Spirit is the Spirit of holiness. Why? Because God is holy. As we receive God's Spirit as a seal of our redemption, we are nourished by His holiness. So that the Spirit of God acts as a sort of principle of life and holiness in us. So that His secret operation produces holy fruit in our lives. That's what the Holy or the spirit of holiness does in the people of God. It produces the fruit of holiness. So holiness, Paul says, is the work of God as the gospel of Christ comes to us by the power of the Spirit. As we believe the gospel, we are rooted in the person and work of Christ, and we are given the spirit of holiness. But holiness is also the pursuit of those who know God. It is our pursuit Yes, holiness is the work of God, but it is also our pursuit. It is both God's work and ours. Both realities are true simultaneously. I think this is why in most of our English translations, like the ESV that I'm using this morning, we have the word sanctification in verse 3 and the word holiness in verses 4 and 8. But friends, these two words are translating the very same term. It is the same word. The translators, I think, are trying to help us work out how holiness can be both the work of God and something we pursue at the same time. They're trying to be helpful, and and, and I think at, at some level they are helpful. But also, translating the same term with two different words sort of confuses the mystery of holiness by making us think the sanctification and holiness are two different things, but they're not, friends. They're not. A better way, perhaps, to read verse 3 will be, for this is the will of God, your holiness. Sanctification is indeed the pursuit of progressive holiness. Look at the emphasis in verse 1 again. Paul writes, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, that you do so more and more. Friends, who is doing the walking in this text? We are. We are doing the walking. Walking in a manner that pleases God, abstaining from sexual immorality, walking in honor and self-control, all these things are an active pursuit. Furthermore, Paul is instructing us here. He uses the wall instruction several times. And what are instructions for? They're meant to be followed. 
The pursuit of holiness is an act of obedience to God's instruction in His Word. God's will in verse 3 is not only what He accomplishes for us, but what He desires from us. God's call in verse 7 is not only the work by which He has called us powerfully to Himself, but it is also what He calls us to be now and do now. The call to holiness in verse 8 Paul says, can be disregarded and it can be disobeyed. Holiness then is both the work of God and it is also our pursuit as we walk in obedience to God and seek to live for His glory. It is both the work of God and our pursuit. So I think the, the right question is, how, how does this work? How, how does it how does this work? How is holiness both the work of God and our pursuit? How do we pursue holiness? And this is important, friends. How do we pursue holiness in a way that it does not become a work that commends us before God, but rather displays the grace of God at work in our lives and ultimately brings Him glory? I do have an answer, but at the same time, let me say this. It is a mystery. There's many things in God's Word that rather than trying to comprehend every single detail, we should, as Jeff often reminds us, of, we should put our, mouth over our, our hands over our mouth and just worship God. And I think holiness is one of those things, is one of those uh, mysteries. But... I think also Paul tells us how these things work in here. We pursue holiness through the means that God has provided. So that it is through these means that God works in us what we cannot produce in ourselves. We pursue holiness through the means that God, ha God, that God has provided. And it is through those means that God works in us what we cannot produce in our own. And friends, the means God uses to work holiness in us is His Word, His Word, both His promises and His warnings. All the promises of God find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. And it is through the gospel of Christ that God works. Indeed, the gospel is the power of God, Paul says in Romans. For salvation, yes, but also for all of life. We are a gospel people through and through. So the means to pursue holiness is by treasuring the glory of Christ in the gospel. It is through the gospel that we come to partake of the life of God in the Son. It is in the gospel that we are promised the Holy Spirit as the seal of our redemption. And it is in the gospel that we, an unholy people, are saved by a holy and righteous yet loving and gracious God and called into a life of holiness that displays the marvelous riches of His mercy towards, towards us in Christ Jesus. We are a gospel people through and through. But we not only treasure God's promises in His word, we also heed His warnings. We also heed His warnings. This is indeed what Paul writes. He is warning us in verses 5 through 8. Paul says 
that we should not transgress and wrong others in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Friends, Paul's warning is serious and weighty. He is addressing us as a people among whom God dwells. He is warning us, in fact, in the presence of God. It is a solemn warning, Paul says. And yet, the warning functions as the means of grace that God uses to keep us from impurity and to work in us His holiness. This is how warnings work for us who are in Christ, friends. And I'm I'm always encouraged by thinking back on uh, Jeff's series through the book of Hebrews, um, where where he... uh, he preaches through the warning passage in Hebrews. He does an excellent job in explaining how warnings work for us who are in Christ. You should go back and listen to that. But this is how warnings work for us who are in Christ. They are like big neon signs that tell us that we are about to go off the rails and fall into a precipice. And because we have received grace to see and to hear the warning with ears of faith, we pay attention to it. It is the warning itself that works as the means of grace keeping us from destruction, friends. It is a gracious thing of God to give us a solemn warning in His Word. It is a gracious and kind thing. Paul's warning to us is that living in sexual immorality leads to transgression. It leads to sin against others. Brothers and sisters, sexual immorality is never, never about yourself. It always affects those around you. It corrupts what God has made holy. It tears apart what God has brought together. It tarnishes what God has made beautiful. It not only corrupts you, but it brings destruction to those around you. And here's the warning for us this morning. The Lord, Paul says, is an avenger, an avenger of those who transgress against others in sexual immorality. Paul is saying if you you do this, you will face the avenging fury of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that kind of warning. Paul is bringing up his charge against sexual transgressors before the court of the living God. Paul is saying that those who do not heed God's warning, but instead continue to give themselves to the unrestrained and unrepentant passions of their lust, show themselves to be outside of the new covenant. Because, in verse 8, they disregard God and His promise of the Spirit. Remember, friends, that the Spirit is the summation of the promises of the new covenant. Those who continue on willful, unrepentant sexual immorality are saying to God and His promise in the new covenant, no, thank you. This is better. It is a staggering warning. 
So we should fear and tremble and respond to God's solemn warning with repentance, confession, and renewed faith in Him. I have taken this out of the sermon, but I think I need to say it, hopefully to encourage somebody. But if you're like me, these kind of warnings will make you tremble and fear and lead you to repentance, yes, but many times will also lead you to doubt. Right? How can, how can a holy and righteous God still love me when I keep struggling with the same immorality? So that's a, a, a good pastoral question. But let me remind you of this, friends. First of all, God's warning is a means of grace. It is kind of God to warn us. And it is the warning itself that will produce in you, by faith, holiness, and a distaste for sexual immorality. So keep believing the gospel. Keep hearing God's word, both promises and warnings, by faith. But also let me encourage you with, this, with the fact that the struggle itself, again, as Jeff reminds us last week, the struggle itself is evidence of God's Spirit at work in you. The struggle itself is evidence of God's grace. So if you are discouraged by this warning this, this morning, take, take heart and continue to believe both the warnings, yes, but also the promises of God's mercy toward you in Christ Jesus. And also, perhaps, you are here this morning, and you're not convinced that this talk about holiness and sexual purity is actually helpful for people. Perhaps you view the biblical teaching on sexuality as oppressive to true human flourishing. But let's consider God's revelation in light of its alternatives in two ways, really quick. First, God's revelation about sexuality is better than the modern ideals on sexuality, which say that we should not suppress our sexual instincts, but rather give full expression to them. I think the danger with, with this view is that it leads to all kinds of perversion, of which the believers in Thessalonica were fully aware of. It leads to all kinds of perver perversion. The logic will be, if I am nothing more than an animal with sexual instincts, then who are you to tell me that any of my instincts are immoral or wrong? Friends, that kind of thinking about sexuality does not lead to human flourishing, but to sexual abuse and all kinds of perversion. On the contrary, God's revelation about sexuality leads to the honoring and upholding of the dignity of others. Friends, God is not against the expression of sexuality. Rather, He is for sexuality that leads to the good of others. So I will say, God's revelation is better than this idea. And second, God's revelation about sexuality is also better than the postmodern ideas of sexuality, which say, that we should not be defined by narrow categories and should therefore get rid of any idea of proper sexual expression according to our God-given identity. But friends, God's revelation 
of sexuality is not narrow. It is not narrow. On the contrary, it enables us to express the fullness of who we truly are as men and women created in the image of God. God's revelation, friends, about sexuality leads both to our flourishing, fully expressing who we are in God's image, and to the good of others, to the good of others and their flourishing. It leads, it leads us not to selfishness, but to love, to love others in our sexual expression. God's revelation about, about sexuality is far more better because it leads to love. It leads to love, which will lead us also to our second mark of living faith this morning. Our second mark of living faith, the simplicity of love. And we will spend far uh, less time on this mark than the first one. The simplicity of love. Living faith produces holiness, and holiness leads us not to transgress against others, but rather to love them. That is the connection between verses 1 through 8 and verses 9 through 12. It is the same operation of God's Spirit that bears the fruit of holiness in our lives and also bears the fruit of love. So like we did with holiness, let's, let's see what Paul says about love. First, again, Paul says that love is also the work of God. It is also the work of God. Notice that Paul writes in verse 9 that concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Here again, Paul is evoking the new covenant language of Jeremiah 31, where God promises to put his law in his people and to write it on their hearts so that we are taught by God himself to obey his commandments. The New Testament writers oftentimes sum up the law of God with the principle of love. You can read, I think, any of Paul's letters, and he's going to sum up the law with, with the commandment of, of loving God, yes, but then loving, loving others. So, another way of saying that God has written His law on our hearts is to say that God, God Himself has taught us how to love one another. Those who belong to Christ have the promise of God's written word inscribed in their hearts and of His work in us by His Spirit as we love one another. Christian love is the work of God in the new covenant. Just as holiness is the regular work of God among His people, also is love. And yet, just as we saw with holiness, so also love is both the work of God and our pursuit. Love, Paul says, is an aspiration. In verse 11, Paul says that we shall aspire to these things. And so the love that Paul commands is a purposeful pursuit. It is purposeful. Although the law of God has been written in our hearts and we have been taught by God to love one another, Paul urges us to continue in this work of love more and more. Friends, to, to love others is a holy ambition. It's a holy ambition. 
God calls us to spend the rest of our lives aspiring to this work of love. It is a central Christian truth that having been purchased by God through the blood of His Son and having been sealed with His Spirit, we are no longer our own but belong to God and therefore we belong to one another. Friends, this is how the world knows who we are. It is the mark of the church that purposeful and sincere love reigns among its members. They will know us by our love. So how do we sincerely and purposefully aim to love one another? What does Paul say that we should aspire to? Well, Paul's aspirations for love are, are simple. He calls us to a simplicity of love. Actually, Paul's aspirations for brotherly love among Christians are shockingly ordinary. They're very ordinary. There's nothing phenomenal about the way Paul instructs us to love one another. His instructions actually run against the grain of our culture, even our Christian culture in the church. They run against it. First, Paul's instructions run against our cultural obsession to live public lives of self-publishing. Even among Christians, the logic runs like this. The bigger my platform, or I guess in this case, the bigger my pulpit maybe, the more good I can do to others. To me, the logic makes sense, right? The, 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 the bigger influence I have, the more good I can do to people and love them and love more people. But rather than commanding us to store a public platform, Paul instructs us to cultivate a quiet and unnoticed life. Quiet and unnoticed life. Look, look at what he writes in verses 11 through 12. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Friends, again, I, I understand the motive and the logic of stewarding our public lives for the glory of God and the good of others. And praise God for those among us who do that well. But more often than not, it, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The Lord has not called all of us to have a huge platform to reach millions of people. And I think we need to be reminded of that almost every day. It doesn't work that way, at least not in Paul's mind in this text. We need to acknowledge, friends, that the temptation to make much of ourselves is shrewd. It is easy to excuse our obsession with what others think about our lives by saying, well, I am stewarding my public life for the glory of God. And I just need to deal with these temptations. Friends, let me encourage you with this. And I think this is Paul's point. Instead of working hard to build a public platform for the glory of God, let's work as hard to cultivate a private and unnoticeable life that works for the good of others behind the scenes. Let's cultivate an unnoticed life of 
the pursuit of godliness. Let's cultivate an unnoticeable lifestyle of praying for one another. Let's cultivate a private lifestyle of devouring God's word and basking in his glory and treasuring the glory of Christ and praying for revival and all these things to see God work through these ordinary means. Secondly, Paul's instructions about love also go against the idea of living loudly to make our voice heard on every issue and to, in essence, police what everyone else is doing or saying. Paul says it very straightforwardly. He says, mind your own business. I mean, the ESV is very generous here, I think. Mind your own affairs. In essence, what the phrase is, is keep to yourself. That, that's, that's what perhaps could be a, an even better translation. Keep to yourselves. Mind your own business. Again, friends, I know the motivation is right at times, and the logic can't make sense. The more the world hears from the biblical perspective of, Christian, of Christians, the better. The more we can put our voice out there with the biblical, biblical perspective on, on everything, the better. And at some level, yes, yes, we should not be silent, but clearly and boldly proclaim the supremacy of Christ over all things. We should do that. We should not be ashamed of the gospel, but rather bear its reproach. Yes, we should do that. But we need to be careful about how we define boldness for Jesus. Paul is saying this is boldness right here. You want to be countercultural? And bold, live this way. Friends, it is a lot easier to post something on Twitter about any issue than to invite your neighbor over to the dinner table to know more about their lives and to talk about the gospel. It is way far easier to do the former. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's remember, please, let's remember that our tweeting and Facebook messages are but a drop in an ocean of confusion. A drop in an ocean of confusion. No one is listening to anyone else on social media. And in fact, the world does not care about our opinions on the platform. They will not pay attention to what we have to say when we are on the public spotlight. Now, friends, they will pay attention to what we have to say and to the way we live our lives once we have stepped down from our platforms. That's when they will pay attention. When they can see the power of the gospel in flesh and bones, in your home, in the way that you parent your children, in the office, at the park. That's when their eyes will spark up and pay close attention to the way that you live and the things that you say. So again, friends, instead of trying as hard as we can to build our public lives, let us work as hard to build our private, unnoticeable, but faithful lives of Christian service and bold witness to Christ where it matters most, where it matters most. And finally, Paul's instructions about love also go against our cultural ideals 
of the good life. They go against our cultural ideals of the good life. Yes, even our Christian ideals of the good life. And the idea goes like this. Less work plus more money equals a better life. Less work, the less I can do and the more money I can get. That, 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 that's how I measure how good my life is. It is a very tempting idea. They sell lots of books on, on, on this under the titles of efficiency and productivity and time management and how to schedule your life better so that, that you can make 15 grand more a year. They actually sell those books and they sell like candy. We are, a, we are an obsessed culture with the idea that less work and more money and more ease equals a better and good life. And we buy into it more often than we dare to admit, friends. We buy into it more often than we dare to admit. Think, for example, of our impulse. Our impulse when we compare the life of two Christian men. The one has his dream job and is able to save up for exciting yearly family vacations. The other man has been working a third shift factory job for 20 years, and his best family memory is a trip to Branson seven years ago. Regardless of what our theology says, most of us, and I'm including myself, most of us will impulsively look at the first man and say, he is blessed. Look at the lavishing love that he has for his family. Look at all the nice things that he's buying for them. Look at all this, these places that they're going. He is lavishing them with love. He is a blessed man. And we will look at the second man and, and think, surely if he, was, if, he, if he was being faithful, he will not be working the third shift anymore. I mean, having you read the books about efficiency, you should not be working the third shift anymore. You've been doing this for 20 years, brother. Or at best, we may say that the brother is enduring a not-so-good life for the sake of Christ. He's enduring for the sake of Christ. But friends, Paul's instructions run against this way of thinking. Paul says that the simple life of hard work for the good of others is the good life. And he says that we should aspire to it. Why? Verse 12, so that we may walk properly before those outside the church. Friends, it is not the extravagant lifestyle of Christians that will confirm the reality of God's presence and blessing among us. But the faithful and ordinary life of Christians who in love spend themselves for the advance of God's kingdom and the good of others. That's what is going to tell the world God is among us. So, the outward marks of living faith are walking in holiness before God and walking properly in simple but sincere love for one another before a watching world. So what does walking properly mean? What does walking properly mean? I think the apple tree illustrates this for us again. It is proper of an apple tree to produce apples and not oranges. Why? Because the life of the seed is appleness, not orangeness. Make it a word. In the same way, 
it is proper that we bear the fruit of holiness and love in our lives because the invisible seed of faith in Christ and the secret operation of God's Spirit are at work in us. God is holy and God is love. As we are united to His life in the death and resurrection of Christ, we begin to produce the holy and loving fruit that is proper to the nature and character of God. And as people taste from the fruit of our lives, they will be able to say, these indeed are the people of God. So by God's grace, may we walk in a way that pleases God, and may He establish our hearts before Him as we bear the outward marks of living faith. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, by your Spirit, God, that you will do the kind of work in our hearts and in our midst that we cannot do on our own. To live lives of holiness and love before a watching world. Father, help us to do this by your grace as we walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.